This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. Cervical cancer is one of the most preventable cancers, yet it is not eliminated. So Dr. Miriam Creamer is here today to talk about her mission with Basic Health International on the plan to eliminate this cancer in partnership with the World Health Organization's mission to do the same. So we're going to learn about what cervical cancer is, its causes, how the HPV vaccine can help, and she does address the fears that many have about this vaccine. And we also talk about those who are most impacted and the future of testing and how that can transform the transgender population. So tell us about cervical cancer. I mean, tell us a bit more about like what it is and the impact, you know, how someone gets it and the prevalence, especially in the United States, just because that's most of where our audience is. And even just some general global statistics as well, just because we are getting a worldwide audience as well. Uh (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Precursor to cervical cancer is an infection with human papillomavirus. And human papillomavirus is a, is a combination of many different viruses, but there are 13 to 14 high-risk HPV types that persist and lead to invasive cancer. So many, many people will get HPV. So there was a study in Syracuse, 77% of college-age women who are sexually active have HPV very common. Most of the time it clears on its own. Um, And we don't have excellent predictors of um, when it's going to clear, when it's going to go away. But those, especially there's some um, pesky high risk types that persist, lead to pre-cancer and then lead to cancer. So um, it's the persistence of those infections. So I did a master's in public health also. And it's very Um, rare to find a cancer where you have a precursor, you have a vaccine for it, and you have a place you can reach, an organ you can get at and treat right away. Um, We have all these tools. Why is it that women are dying of cervical cancer? Or even in the United States, why women get pre-cancer? I'm going to back up a little bit. (laughs) But HPV leads to persistent infections can lead to abnormal results. So women in the United States mainly see, so um, we still have invasive cervical cancer in the U.S. And the sad thing is, is who dies of cervical cancer in the United States is really disproportionately women of color and uh, foreign born women. So there's a huge disparity. It's all about access. So nobody should die of cervical cancer. Um, In the U.S., it's much less common, but the rates are much higher in Black and Hispanic women. What would you say the the rates are in the different um, subpopulations of women? 
So I know that there's about 4,800 women per year in the U.S. that die of cervical cancer. I know that we're encouraged, at least in the United States, to get a pap smear every single year. And my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, a general pap smear doesn't necessarily screen for HPV. There's like a more detailed one that needs to be done. So one, we need to get annual screening. So there's an access point there. So that's issue one. But then part two is if you are getting your annual screening, does a woman have to specifically ask for it? And to be honest with you, if there really are two different screenings, why? Why doesn't everyone just screen for it? It's a really good question, but I'm going to even take you before your screening. Okay. There's an indication for vaccine most importantly, prior to sexual initiation. Okay. And to clarify, you don't mean like literally before having sex. You mean when you're younger? When you're younger. So okay. prior <laughs> to being exposed. So HPV is a sexually transmitted right. infection. I probably should have said that before. Um, and anybody who has sex is exposed to high-risk HPV types. So we have a vaccine. The indication is age nine through 45, but when it works the best, is when you can mount immune response against these specific viruses. And, you know, the first thing is, you know, we have a lot of data that this vaccine is works really well, that it prevents not only cervical cancer, but it prevents head and neck cancers. You know, the side effects are side effects with any vaccine. I guess we'll We'll be seeing that hopefully more and more now in the age of COVID. Um, but, you know, pain at the site of injection, there's some people that faint when they get an injection. But like we know we have really good data on safety and efficacy. And it's really important that girls get vaccinated, preferably prior to age 15. Right. Now, clarification. I feel like I've been hearing rumblings in the news around concern for this vaccine. So, and we know that um, ever since a famous actress decided to start talking about how vaccines are terrible for children, the entire world of vaccine has been assessed and we have a lot of folks who are anti-vaccine. Tell me specifically about the issues that people are bringing up around the HPV vaccine and perhaps you can talk about some data so that people can feel a lot more rest assured that being proactive from the beginning is important. So I'm going to give you a disclosure first. I do okay. speak on behalf of Merck. Come from a background, I've always been a little hesitant with pharmaceutical companies. I believe so much in this vaccine that I give talks, all, I, well, I, not now, but I used to give talks all over the country about promoting HPV vaccine. Okay, so thanks um, for that disclosure. Yeah. I'm in the pharmaceutical industry, so I get it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you should know. I mean, and uh, I, I actually wrote an article that I was in favor of a mandatory vaccine for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and uh, made the mistake of reading the comments. So oh. I learned my lesson. Like, they're okay. like, well, this doctor like didn't disclose that. And I should have. It's, it's true. But it is something, even if I didn't speak for Merck um, or if we had another vaccine, like it is something I really believe in because it is a very rare thing that you have a cancer that you have one risk factor for. And if you can prevent that risk factor, you can prevent that cancer. So the statistics I can tell you is this vaccine has been around since the early 2000s. Um, we have a Nordic cohort that is about 10 years ahead. Vaccination programs in the US started pretty actively around like 2003, but the Nordic cohort was before that. And large randomized trials were done 
that showed that it prevents the cancers that are in the vaccine. So the certain high-risk types, it is very, very effective in preventing cancers from those types. So what are the side effects that people are so concerned about? Like a long-term negative impact, like what are people afraid of and where is it stemming from? I guess, you know, I think that anecdotal information is really powerful. I was on a panel of uh, experts that went to the Allegheny Health Department to, you know, plead the case for why we should have vaccines in schools. And there were probably you know, 20 to 30 of us, um, the vast majority had a neck surgeon who said, I see oral cancers in my practice. This can prevent that. Um, I spoke as a specialist who sees the effects of HPV related diseases in my practice. A very powerful woman from Ohio that said, I was one of four cases of whooping cough in Ohio. So, you know, her perspective and her family's was like, you know, she almost died as a young child because her parents didn't believe in vaccination. Oh, wow. Really believed in this vaccination. Wow. So there were all these pro stories. um, And there was one person that spoke against the vaccine that said, I'm here on behalf of my friend. She has a daughter who was perfectly healthy before, got vaccinated and stopped being able to walk. So as a parent, as a person who loves your, you know, your child and doesn't want to cause them harm, those stories are really powerful. And I feel it as a parent. You are like, oh my God, what am I putting in my kid's body? Is this going to hurt them? You know, but what I can tell you is that there are hundreds and thousands of doses that have been given. The vaccine's been around longer than the iPhone and that the safety data we have, like those things that happen. So things are, things are gonna happen within a population. The adverse events that people worry about, um, autism, seizures, inability to walk, paral- paralysis, um, those things are the same in a vaccinated and an unvaccinated population. And they have been for the past decade. Okay. So we know that it's safe. Thank you for clarifying that. I really appreciate it. Do you think that's why also we're seeing the rates go down? Is it the vaccine and the annual um, pap smears that people are getting? So the rates for sure are going down. Australia has a primary vaccination program. They've had actually to show that they've decreased endpoints of disease, the the precancers within the population, which is pretty astounding that, that that has happened within a whole country. Well, I'm going to go back to the annual pap smear. So the pap smear was something that started in 1948. And what it does, it takes a little brush of um, cells off your cervix and it goes to a slide. And then pathologist reads that slide. And if it looks abnormal, like you come back and have a little biopsy. That strategy was hugely effective um, in the past 50 years of decreasing rates of cervical cancer in the U.S., Um, what it's being replaced by. So the standard of care right now in the U.S. is something called co-testing. So you take a pap smear and at the same time, you can actually test to see if a woman is infected with HPV. That's what you mean by what I was calling like the advanced testing. So it's a co-test? It's a co-test. Is it done all the time? Because I remember I have a very proactive OBGYN and she just was like, I just want to do this special test. She didn't like make it seem like it's, it's a 
you know, a new way to do it. It seemed like a one-time thing that she was doing because I was um, starting fertility treatments. And as you know, um, STDs have a negative impact. So you get tested like crazy for STDs before you do fertility treatments. Let's say a woman happened to not get the HPV vaccine and is now going to see her OBGYN. We want to make sure, and she's sexually active. We don't want her to get cervical cancer. You know, are we in a phase where they still have to ask for the co-testing just to be sure? No, no, so that's now is standard. Pretty standard of care. I mean, okay. um, so there's a lot of good data that you shouldn't be doing. And so a pap smear, we call it cytology. So meaning looking at the cells of the cervix, yep. that is not as good of a test as right. an HPV test. Okay. So, and it will probably be obsolete within the next 10 years. Like it's okay. done its job. We could decrease it a lot. As we could see, the more and more tests we do, we kind of taught women that they needed to do this every year. And when you, when you go to your gynecologist, you might hear, well, I only have to do this if you have negative tests every five years, every three yes. years. And so it's not an annual test anymore. And that that's like per the guidelines. So since like 2009, we have said, you're going to use, you're going to do the cytology test and the HPV test at the same time. The direction I think we're going to move to is um, primary HPV testing. Okay. And I guess I would say one caveat with it, if you have younger listeners, anybody under 30 and per some guidelines, 30, some guidelines under 25, so many people in that cohort have infection with HPV and right. it clears and there's not a lot of high grade precancers and cancers in that group. So we had guidelines. You should start testing as soon as you had sex, as soon as you were 18 for a while, then it was 21. We really think, you know, it's not necessary to screen women under 25 Interesting. Um, per the new guidelines. Again, just to clarify. So the co-testing you're saying is pretty standard of care now, but yeah. I'm also hearing not everyone is doing it because you said obsolete in 10 years to do the, just the pap smear. Obsolete to do the pap smear and the right. HPV testing. I think we're going to take pap smear out and just do HPV just Got it. Are you saying then that since we're doing the pap smear, um, are you saying that if someone's under 25, they don't even need the pap smear? Are you saying do the pap smear, but then the co-testing? So some places still do. Um, okay. And it's okay to do that. Um, we want to find the most number of women and prevent invasive cancer. That's the end goal. And what we don't want to do in young women is overtreat. Okay. Like, Thank give you. them the scare. Like maybe you have something, you have to have these biopsies. You maybe have to have this procedure that might affect your um, obstetrical care later. The focus has really been the most important group is age 30 to 50 is where we see the most high grade lesions that are treatable. Yeah. So t let's talk about that. So let's say um, you're in the unfortunate situation of having cervical cancer. What does that mean and, and how treatable is it? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the U S most people will be in the situation that they have an abnormal pap smear and that they have, that they are told that they have pre-cancer. So um, I think it'd be great to do a floater of the number of pre-cancers in the U.S. because that rate is really high. Like how really? many people do you know that have had an abnormal pap smear that requires them to get a colposcopy? 
So a colposcopy means, so you had an abnormal screen of some kind. You come and then they say, you have to come back and we look at your cervix under a microscope um, and use a little, like, you, you know, there's areas that you would need to take a little piece of tissue. So there's a little um, punch biopsy that you take with the cervix. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's also scary. I have this abnormal test and then I have to go and have this uncomfortable colposcopy test, which is you put, you know, you put your, you have to see the cervix, put your legs in the stirrups, put some vinegar on your cervix, look with a magnifying glass, and then taking samples, sending them to pathology. That's the normal way we do that in the U.S. Um, and if those are abnormal, um, we treat with um, excising your cervix, which can make it shorter um, and have people with shorter cervix may, you know, be less likely to be able to carry a pregnancy to full term. Interesting. So it's not, it's not benign. So what I can tell you is pre-cancers are um, concerning because we're concerned they're going to go to cancer, but many of those clear on their own also. Right. And what we know in young women is that they clear much more often. So we're, you know, looking at risk, really, your risk of pain and suffering of have to go in for all those tests when it might go away on its own, or you might have an invasive procedure that's going to affect obstetrical outcomes. But you asked me like what it seems like to have invasive cancer. And I would guess what I can tell you is um, it's highest in minority populations because they might not interface the healthcare system as much. Um, so we have to do a better job in the healthcare system to make people feel welcome to come, make it accessible, make those tests affordable and the follow-up affordable because what good is a test gonna do if you can't get the proper follow-up? Right. Um, and it's women that don't get those screening tests that wind up with cervical cancer, that they have a history that they haven't been vaccinated and they haven't come in for their screenings. Other risk factors are, and you smoke and you have HIV. So immunocompromised women may be more likely to have cervical precancers and cancers, um, but cervical cancer, invasive cancer. Um, so, and the good news is about precancers is they're always treatable. And we have really good tools in the US to treat them. And you can still keep your uterus, so you can still have babies. And it's pretty benign. It's an outpatient procedure. You don't need chemotherapy. You don't need radiation. And the time you go from HPV infection to precancer to cancer is years. So really? there's a long time to find that okay. and treat it. So nobody should wind up in that unfortunate place of getting cancer. It's just unacceptable. Right. You know, like with all these tools that we have that anybody would wind up with invasive cancer. If you know you have a listener that has invasive cervical cancer, don't despair. We have wonderful health systems in this country, wonderful um, GYN oncologists. So I'm a general gynecologist. When somebody has invasive cancer, um, I recommend referral to somebody with a specialty in oncology, which is cancer care, um, is really important. Um, but you know, it their early stages can be treated surgically. Um, the later stages can also be treated. There are some phenomenal places in the country to get care, right? Where you are, Memorial Sloan Kettering is an amazing place. 
Now, one thing that I'd love to get your commentary on is related to, you know, even just broadly STDs and affecting fertility, because one of the things that, and why I do this podcast is, you know, I acknowledge that a lot of women may say, oh, I'm worried about this specific condition. Let me listen to this episode. And I do hope we get to a point where women are more proactive and listen to more of these episodes more because a lot of these things are so interrelated and we're not taught that. And, you know, like when I was in college, many moons ago. (laughs) And unfortunately, it's the same story still. We just were told, um, well, I grew up in Florida, so it was don't have sex, um, which, you know, that just makes kids want to disobey even more. So (laughs) hopefully people are getting the picture. But then, so that was message one. The other message was STDs are bad. So I'd love to figure out how how to hone in on the importance of being proactive. And and perhaps one way to do it is to talk about the impact of not. Like I had no idea the impacts of STDs on infertility. So you gave one, which is, you know, if you have to have parts of your cervix cut off and it's shorter, that could impact you carrying a baby. So can you like draw a very clear picture for women who maybe are naive about um, for from lack of education, not not at all trying yeah, to say course, you're yeah. being bad. It's just we just don't know. And so help us understand why this is so, so important. So I guess I'll start with there's no shame in an STD. Like we've made this whole stigma around it. It's so common. You know, every time I'm in my office, I diagnose somebody with an STD. They're very, very common. And, and you know, I guess it's not general coffee table conversation, but it is, it's just, it's very common is all I'll say. So in young women, the common, the most common is obviously HPV, right? So HPV can lead to cervical cancer and precancer can also lead to genital warts, which are common and uncomfortable and preventable with the vaccine. It's a lower risk type that won't lead to cancer. So if you have genital warts, it it doesn't mean you have precancer, but it's, you know, it's preventable with the vaccine. So that's amazing. Other STDs are chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, really common. And what happens is sometimes you don't feel it. You know, there's no vaginal discharge. There's no, like, you don't feel anything. So in younger women, I just take a swab, send it to the lab, and I find out we can give them some antibiotics and it goes away. But if it doesn't go away, you can get inflammation, scarring, and difficulty getting pregnant. Scarring where? In the, in the uterus and the tubes. Interesting. Yeah. yeah we're, just I mean, like endometriosis. It's a similar process that I think we should view in a similar way. It's just the thing that happens to people. So yeah. I'm not saying don't, you know, use condoms, protect yourself, but we have great things to treat it. You know, so the importance of an annual exam for young women is to have those SDI screenings. Right, no, absolutely. So the proper treatment. And obviously we know um, condoms are really important. You know, we're focused here on the women, but when it comes to intercourse for people who are in a male-female relationship, and I guess maybe that's not the appropriate term, and I'm still learning about transgender, and I will be um, aiming to do a podcast on that. So I should say oh, the traditional male-female parts interacting mm-hmm. is probably from my limited knowledge today, which will be greater hopefully in a few weeks. So in, in that interaction, like 
you know, again, a lot of us know, but I don't want to assume everyone knows this is yes, the condoms are important, but I think some may have a misperception that it would be obvious if the person that you're having intercourse with would have the STD. So talk about that's not necessarily the case. And oh, yeah, (laughs) often be asymptomatic. So another common infection, which sadly, we don't have a cure for is herpes. Yeah, we have some great suppression medicines for it that you can take. But um, STDs definitely are not always visible. You you can't tell. Um, And condoms help, but they're not 100% effective. And so, so things you can do, like, you know, if you, you can get screened, your partner can get screened before you decide to have um, sex without condoms. Um, I guess going down that road because undesired pregnancies like goes along right with that. Yep. That young women, like we have amazing contraception, like amazing methods of contraception. And I could go into a whole thing of that and I won't. But, you know, we have some great things for all women, anybody, you know, all sides of the spectrum, like you should be able to plan to have your kids when you want to. Right. And the HPV vaccine is for men and women. And so that's another screening women can do is ask their partner if they've had the vaccine, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, I can tell you uptake in the U.S. is not great. So we, um, I was on the committee making the new cervical cancer screening guidelines. Okay. Um, and we can't use any like vaccinated versus unvaccinated changing how you screen them because there's not enough data because they're wow. not enough people being vaccinated. So our vaccination, we could do so much better in the U S most of the time we're recommending vaccinations in before seventh grade. I think it is. Yep. At that point, if your kid's not in sports, you're not doing all those physicals. So where's our touch point for girls between 13 and by the time they have sex? Mm -hmm. Like they may not even be going to a pediatrician that often. Um, So that's part of it. It's just access. Um, New York City's amazing. You guys do have some school-based vaccination programs. Yeah, I didn't even think about that when we first started talking about the topic, but you're right. I was just thinking about the the patient journey. And yeah, I remember like when I was a kid after the vaccines, you know, I, and I guess maybe if this becomes a mandated vaccine like others, I could see it, but you're right. There isn't a point of care because if your kid's not sick, you don't take him to the doctor. So yeah, I, I mean, and the other thing I can say, you really do want to get that vaccine into them before they have sex. It yeah. works, you know, because it protects against seven high risk HPV types. Mm -hmm. So even if you've been exposed to one, you may have not been exposed to the other. I'm not saying don't get it if you already have it. So the indications are age nine to 45. Okay. So is there anything else about cervical cancer that maybe I didn't ask a question about? I think my messages are, you know, do primary prevention, get vaccinated, get your screening that if you're particularly over 30, make sure that screen includes an HPV test. And I think people move around a lot. So it's not a bad idea to know your status. Um, And the key questions I think to know about yourself is, you know, was I HPV positive or negative? But if you really want to be savvy, no, did I have HPV 16 or 18? Because we can tell you those things. And if you move to another healthcare center, like knowing those things are kind of great. 
Now, HPV 16 and 17, tell me about that. What's, what are those? So those HPV, are the most high risk? HPV type 16 is the most high risk. 60% of cervical cancers are caused by type HPV 16. Okay. Like get rid of one player, it's that one. Wow. And these new HPV tests pull out sometimes the specific, we call them genotypes. So you can tell which type of HPV that the infection is with. Okay. So 18 okay. causes the other, like another 20%. Oh, wow. So if, you know, just get rid of those two. That would be amazing. Wow. Have an abnormal test, I guess. Ask your provider for those records. So you know, kind of your history, because what's new and really cool is that these new guidelines, um, we're going to have a risk-based management so that I can tell you, you know, your risk of developing invasive cancer is this percent. I think you should have a colposcopy. Your risk is this percent. I think you should have treatment. And what you need to do to, to know those risks are the history of the, you know, previous pap smears and the previous HPV tests. Those are the things that go into it. That's all going to be how providers are um, making these decisions, which is pretty cool. It's funny that you mentioned this, not because I'm happy that it's happening, but just, you know, it's something that I'm becoming really interested in too, is just doing episodes to help those who are in more lower income populations because the podcast is free. And, and nowadays almost everyone has phones. And so it should be yeah. easy to listen to, but I am talking to folks about really educating those populations too, about things that they can do. And I'd love to get your perspective in the U.S. specifically, um, and I don't know if they apply broadly, because like I said, we are getting a global audience, just if there's things that that population should be aware of from an expert like yourself around things that they can and should do, because um, I didn't know if the access to care was a lack of education around it needs to be done, affordability, is there any way that a creative way to get access to that care? The United States, we have something called Federally Qualified Health Centers, um, FQHCs. They have phenomenal primary care. Um, so even if you don't have, you know, no matter, it doesn't matter what your immigration status is. It doesn't matter if you have insurance, like they take all comers, which is really amazing. Um, so uh, the federally qualified health centers are a great place to go. Planned Parenthood is a fantastic place to go also for some of those primary screenings and treatment. Like you're in New York City, so you guys have some of the best like citywide hospitals in the country of access to care. So I think we as providers need to be accessible <laughs> to everybody. I really hope that no one's in a situation that you have no listeners in a situation that say, I have an admirable pap smear and I have nowhere to go. Have them get in touch with me. I'll help them. Like that's, that's just not right. Like yeah. no one, no one should be in that situation. We should have good, decent safety nets here. No, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you. Possibly touch on self-sampling and how that might improve HPV at some point, I don't know how much is being done in the United States. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. Ooh, tell me about this. So there are two HPV tests that are already approved by the FDA for just the HPV test without the pap smear. What that means is that a woman could just take a swab, 
put it in her vagina and send it off and get the results. So that's super cool because if you're looking at a population-based screening, like an, if you want everybody to get their sample, that's the way to do it. And then you can focus all of your resources on that you know, 10 to 12% that are HPV positive so that we you know, can see and treat the highest risk women. Is this an at home and it's available or not yet available? So um, it is not yet FDA approved, but it's okay. coming. I, I, I anticipate that it will be soon. That will be the future of screening. I mean, I see a lot of the at-home diagnostics. I'm talking to a lot of the CEOs of these companies and it's incredible to see who's, who's the company so I can monitor or is it not disclosable? So no, I can tell you who has that primary HPV test. There's a company called Cobos and one called On Clarity. I think Cobos is made by Roche, um, but those would be because you need to have that indication for primary HPV right. testing, those would be the first ones. But I think there's a whole lot of HPV tests out there um, that we have good guidelines, you know, okay. where in the US. So I would definitely monitor that, monitor the FDA, you know, and I can let you know when that the self-sampling gets approved. It should be coming within the next year or so here. That's amazing. I'm it getting really chills. It is just so cool. Like what people are doing. I mean, it's and that's how you hit all the people. Like, am I at risk? And if you have a negative test, you can be reassured for at least five years that you don't have to do another one. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. And because of the slow growth. Exactly. Yeah, the secondary reason that I asked um, Miriam to bring up the self-sampling is not only from the the idea that this could be something that would be really affordable and, you know, get access more easily, but also because BHI led a, a, a re led research um, for transgender men where you're in a situation where maybe the medical system where you are is not fond of your choices, yet you still need to have, you know, cervical cancer screening. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually had a note about the transgender because I noticed that on your website and I completely forgot to bring it up. I mean, I would just say like anybody with a cervix needs to have screening and okay. they need to have safe places to get that screening. But self-sampling is pretty exciting for that population because it's really private. And if it's negative, you can be really reassured. So that's amazing. Bringing in people and doing a speculum exam where you really, really have to. Wow, that is amazing. But it's again, not yet FDA approved, so coming soon. And then I always like to end with, what is your greatest hope for women's health? I mean, that nobody should die of a preventable disease. You know, it's something that's plagued me since watching that woman die needlessly in El Salvador. You know, we have all these tools, like the WHO this year has called for elimination of cervical cancer. It can be done within my lifetime. Like nobody should die of that.